I gotta introduce you first. Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to the Gail Scott reading. Uh, I'll remind you to turn your cell phones down or off or just no interruptions, please. Uh, we'll shut this door. Um, and I'll remind you also that there's a Cole Swenson is reading uh, Friday 4.30 in the visual arts performance space. So um, please come to that. It was an amazing week of readings here. So um, without further ado, uh, Mandy Martin Sandino, an MFA student, has written a introduction for Gail. So uh, please. Okay, technology. Gail Scott could easily be described as a writer constantly operating in the in-between. Scott creates works that transcend the tradi traditional boundaries of poetry and prose, avant-garde and experimental, textuality and orality. She writes in a language between French and English, a language of her own that is riddled with double entendre and careful reassessments of the sentence as a structural entity. Location changes in Scott's work as her own physical space evolves and becomes transported, and the distinction between the personal and the private vanishes. The understanding of self and other commingle, offering a narrative voice or chorus that speaks simultaneously of the human condition as a whole and the intimacy of subjective trauma. Even time becomes an unfixed concept in Scott's works tantalizing readers with the writing ripe in a philosophy set to keep theorists at work, at the work of disentanglement for centuries. Scott's most recent book, The Obituary, is an extension of her previous work, My Paris. Yet one could not accurately call it a sequel. Unlike My Paris, which is set simultaneously in Walter Benjamin's, Gertrude Stein's, and our contemporary Paris, The Obituary takes place, for the most part, in Myland, Montreal, in the present day and in the 1880s. This shifting landscape is incidentally also the entirety of the world. Sometimes a purient fly buzzing over the action, sometimes a politically correct historian, a woman perpetually traveling on a bus or lying in a bed. Obituaries Rosine speaks in the splintered voice of one haunted by the ghosts of the past, the present, and of the future. The strangeness of space and the naming of places on maps is continuously questioned in the study on the violent impact of Montreal's Anglophone, Francophone, and Indigenous cultures. As Abby Page of Rover Arts explains, while Montreal is the novel setting, it is also the canvas on which many erasures and lies of emissions have been acted out. This is partly the natural evolution of a city. When one building burns down, another is built on its foundation. Street names are changed, deeds and leases change hands. But when we live in a space where someone else lives before us, we also live with them. The ghosts that haunt us and make us who we are. Riding out of Montreal, a city so sonorously distinct with its mix of languages, Scott's works, debatably untranslatable, have been republished in French, German, Spanish, and Portuguese. Scott has been shortlisted for a Lambda Award, the Governor General's Award in Translation, and was a, was a finalist for the 2011 Grand, Grand Prix de, Livre de Montreal, the Montreal Book Prize, and was dubbed the coolest person interviewer Amelia Schombeck had ever met. <laughs> a, simult a simultaneous writer in multiple transcending genres, teacher at the University de Montreal, translator, archivist, anthologist, activist, and theorist in every endeavor, it is my honor to introduce you to the magnificent multitasking genius that is Gail Scott. Thank you so much for that absolutely stunning introduction, which I shall have to now to be Really lovely introduction. Thank you. And you really covered a lot of a lot of bases. I um, actually was going to start, and I hope this is of some use to you, by talking just a little bit about what I mean by experimental prose and uh, consequently why I do it. Um, a couple of minutes uh, talking about that before I start to read, because the people I know anyway who are involved in actually writing experimental prose on the whole 
one of the things we say to each other when we meet, and we're people from all over the continent writing in, uh, basically in French and English, but other languages as well, is that there is not a critical milieu which really um, discusses this work. We tried in Biting the Air, which I co uh, published with uh, Robert Gluck and other San Francisco people, Camille Roy, uh, Mary Berger, if you know their work, um, when we did Biting the Air, um, an anthology on experimental prose, which came out with Coach House in Canada about, I don't know, how many years ago, several years ago now. So um, I'm going to start, there's a new issue of Open Letter, which is a Canadian um, literary journal, actually one of the best literary journals in Canada, and it, it does special issues on writers, and um, the last issue is on my work, which is a big honor. The second last one was on Lisa Robertson's work, so you know I'm in pretty good company. And um, I'm going to start with a little short quote from the really great American writer, uh, Rene Gladman, about the problems of writing prose, and uh, talk a little bit about it. Um, Rene wrote this incredible piece where she uh, cut sentences out of various books of mine and um, posted them on the wall of her room and then uh, wrote a piece about it, which is very Rene. <laughs> Think an approach. I adore that. I began the day writing several of Gail Scott's sentences on the wall of my living room. For months I had been trying to say something about them, which when I went to say it became layered, thus impossible as an utterance. I had already argued somewhere that one could not express um, many different things at the same time in the English sentence and so was not terribly surprised by my failure. I'd learned that to think in this language, you had to be patient. You had to say one part, like drawing one side of a drawing, and drawing until eventually you'd made a complex observation and a picture feeling. You had to be okay that it took you 20 minutes to make this multi-level statement and accept that you hadn't actually scraped the surface yet of what you were really trying to see in this language. So um, I, I think that just sort of indicates some of the complexities um, that are posed a little differently by experimental prose um, than by um, poetry, which has its um, own wonderful set of complexities, but also fortunately for poets, years of poetics uh, discussing those complexities. As you know, um, I, some of you will heard some of the things that I'm saying before, but I hope it's a useful introduction. As you know, in the visual arts and music and painting and in certain kinds of poetry, the notion of singularity of gaze or take has so long been suspect. Gaze may be suggested, but a lot is left up to the spectator or reader if the work of the writer is that of troubling bit by bit our way of seeing, our way of thinking, then we have to um, uh, put this in, in, into question. For me, um, I, I think it's time to democratize the novel. A lot of people feel that the novel's already dead or stagnant um, or a matter of such conventions that you cannot change it. But I'm a person who likes to take on a challenge, and I'm still... Um, um, trying. Um, I, one of the things that I really envy about poets is the space that they authorize themselves to play with on this on the page, and particularly the white space at the end of the line or between the lines where you can stop, etc. Think, add one's own word, whatever. Here's the problem for experimental prose or for prose, I think, in general. If one builds sentences such that the reader isn't totally hooked on the narrative, which is what I'm trying to do, sentences which give pause in the way they relate to each other via parataxis or grammatical torquing, for example, the space opens for the thoughtfulness of the reader. That's what I'm trying to do, but it's not the same thing as, for example, what Ron Silliman is trying to do in his new sentence. Because there is a tension in my work and other work like my work, and I think Gladman's is uh, one of these um, works, between the work on language and the, the desire to keep the work in the foreground, um, 
that awareness of language, um, which means also that uh, language is not just communication, but also very material, uh, along with the movement or pull of the narrative, or of what you might call um, the story. And uh, I'd like to also posit here that maybe there is a difference between the notions that we've developed of narrative, although if we remember that Gertrude Stein said narrative is one thing after any other thing, um, uh, narrative can actually be anything, but I think we have a notion in our mind of narrative that is quite different than, for example, the notion of story in uh, oral storytelling, which has a speculative quality that really interests me because um, because the audience is always intervening and in their process of intervening is also um, altering the story. And though I work with text and not oral uh, work, that's um, interest interesting for me. Um, I'm going to give you, uh, talk a little bit about the how my uh, this last novel that I'm reading from is put together because people can be puzzled about how to read it and I don't think I've met anybody who's attempted to criticize it who hasn't started by saying even in their articles this novel is so hard to read or this novel takes so long to read it's only 162 pages so the device in my latest novel The Obituary is as Bob Gluck puts it to operate on many fronts at once or I would say rather it's a continuation of my experimentation as regards breaking down the speaker voice into a plurality of sound yet working in the sentence which pulls one towards a unity a unary voice contiguity so again that tension um, I'm going to tell you what the book is about sort of like you know if ever you go to the opera you get the libretto on a piece of paper, so you don't have to worry what the story is. You can just actually listen. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, Then you can listen without too much worrying. This, the novel's actually an investigation of who speaks when one speaks, which I think is a really um, interesting question um, uh, for, a, for ev all of us t today. Um, in some ways, I kind of uh, try to approach an identitary quest question, which is in, a, in part about about my mother's family, who were more or less native. My father's family Scottish, but it's not an identitary novel. In fact, it's probably an anti-identitary novel, in the sense that it's constantly breaking down um, all these uh, voices. So the, the novel set in Montreal, which, as you may know, is the only actually. Um, officially, officially French-speaking, uh, major French-speaking city on the continent, with a narrator who's distributed or dispersed over, as you so really accurately said in your introduction. She sometimes, um, uh, she's on a bed or on a bus, but her, her parts fall apart all the time. So another part of her is a very uh, naughty uh, fly on the wall who speaks when she, when, when she's feeling hot, there's a kind of dissociation that happens and the fly on the well gets involved in some really sort of sexy talk. Mm -hmm. A third a third shard of Rosine is um, her what you might call her uh, superego, which is a politically correct lesbian. Uh, <laughs> and she um, um, contributes um, commentary from the footnotes most of the time. Sometimes she gets into the main part of the novel. And mostly her, her job, she's a very good researcher, and mostly her job is to set the story straight, make sure that it's um, politically kind of on the right track, historically on the, on the right track. And she also has lots of ideas about what narrative should be. Um, because the voice is so dispersed and so porous, that is because there isn't actually a single voice, but a, a protagonist who's distributed into shards, uh, that leaves lots of room for other voices to come in. And um, some of the other voices are, uh, first of all, uh, I think it's suitable in this age of surveillance. Um, Rosine lives on the top story of a triplex, which is a stacked kind of housing that is fairly particular to Montreal, um, to traditional sections of Montreal, although you have similar housing in San Francisco, Except in Montreal, it's tackier. The, ho the, the outside stairs on the front kind of look like fire escapes going up, and also they're like 
crazily wildly ornate cornices um, with all kinds of uh, decorations on them. She's on the top floor of one of these rooms. She's either in the window or on the bed. The fly is on the wall or in the stairwell with two cops. One of them is an ancient, probably dead French gendarme who's looking through her keyhole. And uh, he's there because he was in love with her grandfather, a half-breed tap dancer who uh, he met in Paris in 1924. It's actually my godfather who's the tap dancer, but I made him into my grandfather. And um, then there with Casnoisette, who's the name of the of the French cop. That means nutcracker in English, Casnoisette. Um, the old French cop. There's also a young Quebecois computer hacker who's hacking into Rosine's computer in the room behind the door. And uh, the computer hacker actually wants to be an actor and play pose like Gaia in the National Theatre School night course. So it's pretty complicated. But anyway, those are the characters. Other voices that come through this porous text are friends, lovers. A therapist called Macbeth who quotes himself to explain <laughs> Rosine's perpetual elusiveness. And finally, a group of usually inebriated men who don't seem like ghosts because everyone's a kind of ghost, but they're the shale pit workers who actually took the shale out of the, the limestone of the ground that built the old part of Montreal um, in the 19th century. And I'll tell you in a minute why they're important, but I'm going to read one of their drinking songs in French and English first because it's really fun. Les chères me tremblent. I've got the shakes. Elles peuvent and no wonder. L'hiver commence. Winter's coming. J'ai tout bu mon été. I've drunk away my summer. Au verse, au verse. Oh, pour me another. Une chopin de whiskey. A nice drink of whiskey. Si je fais une bonne semaine, if I have a good week, je te paierai samedi. I'll pay you next Saturday. So they're kind of appearing in the novel from um, time to time. And these shell pit workers... Um, I imagine them as, as being um, native French. A lot, of, actually, a lot of Quebecers are um, were mixed race uh, quite a long long time back, coming down from the rural areas um, to do the heavy lifting in 19th century Montreal, and this would have included Rosine's grandfather. The title of the obituary is for the loss of Aboriginal or First Nations heritage handed down or not handed down from Vera, who's Rosine's mother, and it is also from my mother. I borrow the plot because, of course, with that kind of a setup, there's no way you can have a plot. I borrow the plot from an old Hitchcock movie, if you're any Hitchcock fans here, Dial M for Murder, in which a woman kills an assassin sent by her husband to kill her. So now I'm going to read a bit. And you don't have to worry about the narrative. Um, I, hope, I hope I can read it in a way that brings out the, the sound of the language and the various characters and now you kind of have an idea of the story so rest assured dear reader our novel in nearing denouement shall still meander in commensurate as fashion where after ever citing modes of before as in that forties forties horizontal knit striped dress around Rosine Deuce's ass bending over police reporter desk or the tweed patterned cap from her matante, Maddie Trotskyist sycophant smoking outside Groupe Maxis Revolutionnaire headquarters or grey button-to-bottom skirt and jacket for morning tearless at Vera's premature funeral or glasses that darken groovy under cafe new fluorescence while energetically maintaining two friends a gat boo-boo notebook or any individual pretending flatness of effect typiquement anglaise, typically English that her old friend Father B of Prince Albert S.K. always saying in ministering to the mixed ancestry people of his far north parish the hybrid rising above her dichotomies with the clarity of autumn unless stuck in the crack of her belongings so is she lying there next, the absent one beside her, that's crossed out, stuck like that in the gloaming, plus several seconds, you can hear a pin drop, 
air broadcast voice belting down Settler Nun Hall from Yellow Kitchen Radio, declaring with certainty of top-paid radio state employee just arriving from Europe that clearly the French identity thing no longer relevant. He saw that in Paris, local accent retorting. Here comes the truck with independence leader's big face on it. Ha, 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 calling your small animals. Meanwhile, in triplex, railway flat stairway, old casse-noisette, éternellement en nice, bony fingers thin to point of disappearing in greeny stairway air, characteristically squeezing hanky to nose and holding loops steady with chilling patience of sleuths, spies, police agents of so many decades' experience, you wouldn't believe it, hairy ear catching contralto somewhere uttering, I wanted to fuck you all night, joining old gendarme incoatly toward boule, uh, sorry, jolting old gendarme in Côtely toward Boule Saint, Montréal, Quebec, circa 1924, his youth still uncoiffed, hastening north toward Maud David's brothel in search of only man he ever really loving, passing countless tavern windows, patrons reaching for glasses to accompaniment of music, streetcars, rag-trade women rushing along narrowing boulsin ribbon, disappearing into pinky panes on either side of the street, bouncing in turn off each other, on each other under fantastical oriental cornices, the Parisians skipping jauntily past old textile vendors, shortening their rulers, which was probably advisable, past little children of Jesus' church whose Latinit church shadow prayerfully extending toward then freshly erected sky-blue bathhouse opposite, in those days strictly for ritual cleansing, corner fair mountain where stones flying in early dark, hitting Smokey's tavern windows, behind which the shale pit workers swigging, children crying outside green tavern door, Papa come home, swigging, swigging with dandruff flake peddlers from Rue Colonial, Saint-Urbain, Rift Town, flogging bare-ass ties, firefly yo-yos, waterfall mugs, glistening fluorescent, with false quickening on tipping, then repacked in sample cases and headed for River of the Wolf, Massawippi, Jolly Port, cases stowed under seats of vendors parking their white bottoms in cheap peddler suits, boots so lined with newspaper in various conveyances heading north to the boonies, reading in Le Journal, La Patrie, or Herald. Yesterday, savages known as Tête de Boule, roundheads, killing several wolves entre Matan et Rimou. X. I'm going to stand right here because I feel like I'm giving a lecture. X, speaking of heartless purveyors, I just saw you floating over, big tits and polka dot shift, cinched in at waist heading down beach. But granted, the purveyors were before, before time was ripe, before Ipperwash, Burt Church, Port Radium, James Bay, Kanesataki, were handful of armed Mohawks stopping Caucasians from the outers, backed by the army and provincial police from destroying sacred burial ground for golf course. OX, do you remember? Untrained to powwow under two mountains, all the blue uniformed conductor girls like us? People were freer then. Do you remember on approaching the barricades, the lawns in front of all the tiki-taki houses, pink flamingos and darky dwarves before people learning not to say savage out loud, albeit already knowing to say the masses and the masses, example, tenants and landlords, a ladder of which contemporaneously ringing, ringing, Rosine's 4999 settler nun, middle gallery bell. Quiet, again, the electric current that gift of the land, inhabited by the soul of giant waterways formerly flowing north, till cruelly torqued by men to flow in exactly the opposite direction, flooding caribou and poisoning every little poisson fish with mercury, generating in process electric current, momentarily interrupted by ravages of ice storm, from flowing in cables or tundra, or or exploited boreal forest till collapsing with layer on layer of ice, so that now, in settler none, totally dark room, 
the abruptly non-static ambience resonant with pummeling, tam-tamming of ice pellets, hitting front blades of snowplows careening off the smaller <coughs> sidewalk models, also hurtling up Rue Clark, the Esplanade, Hotel of the City, Colonial, Henry G. Drolet, Settler Nun, etc., pelting homeless chick who's crying just ahead. What are you doing? I see you're ill, stupid, doing. I see your dig-ass of a nuggly, causing silhouette in dark end of room to oscillate a little. Until we die, there will be sounds. On railway flatbed, possibly projecting and lying there akimbo, unnice image, simultaneously self-admonishing. La sécurité, c'est quoi? Security is what? C'est suspicious, avaricious, meanness, a self-imposed seclusion. Who wanting to be? secure. No free spirit ever dreaming of security. Or if she did, laughing, laughing, letting others almost in range then slamming middle gallery door, causing posty, raising rain-brimmed hat to be declaring and handing mail through barely agile crack to lovely lips with toothpick visible in corner. You're a bitter little lady. Now we're back to the fly who's in the stairwell, um, and he's watching the computer of the hacker fly. So, you're a bitter little lady, the fly, ex voto. Speaking of ressentiment, if only this heart commanded by love, not binding me to fretwork, cheeks all red and puffy, no one on cop assistance purple monitor anti-dill erect at grandpa's table, plotting to quash my once upon a time greener of Icor person as I, the baby muska skipping analectically onto plate rail where, flicked by dill's tapette, that's a fly sweater, I crawl across an angel, climb a plaster pubis, tire to point of reawakening a click in glow of neshkitone, snow that falls, the dark November eve, shorten and shorten, and the saying, one more little stairway, hocus-pocus, simultaneously sensing that tapet fly sweater still in back of Auntie ass on Grandpa's chair. That deal will get me yet. I do see do behind the most expensive plate on Grandma's rail. No, she knows in the rehearse. Stick my foot, right foot out and cop a cookie crumb, missed by Irish char, who asked by Grandmama to get down on her knees and wipe off sixty spindle legs of Faux Windsor chairs squawking out window to little Rosie, streaking in frills and patent leather shoes past the row of pines with the jays across the street trying to take from Grandpa's robins. Your grandma's a squawk, squawk, squawk. <laughs> Dill's fat fingers creeping behind her bratty prat again. Oh, can you smell the roast on oval oak table? I, the fly, sidelines slightly over. On the afternoon we are murdered. This story will become malodorous. Our little surrogate at a loss without her fly on the wall to secrete the metaphysic under the topo logic of reality. Of course, she can come back as a ghost. Oh, oh, can you smell the juice? I want to stick in my protuberance. Alas, only meant wars, revolutions, ecological disasters later when, due to ephemeral materiality, certain sensory options expired. Will I get to do it? Need I mention? The future select stake is Argentinian. Here's where I cite Virgil and the southern wind with the quiet streaking of the mast calling us to eternity. That's crossed out. Sleep. We're not that homeless chick down below on macadam whimpering, fainter, fainter. I am a miracle of the stars, then fallen to ground in icy haze, snow, blanket inducement, over, fallen, fallen, till she disappearing completely invisible under, just a snowblower turning right on settler nun, advancing, advancing, spewing everything in front via high funnel over, but we are loath to go, Father, crossed out farther, for we, the living, 
obliged to keep moving toward that monstrosity, the future, and the interior within it, though maybe failing to make of destiny or time, unlike that blonde in Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, polished as a mirror to catch our collective pathos, yet bred in the bone, as Vera liking to say, for gold-plate survival, magnificent in the famous movie trailer, her splayed, manicured fingers groping, groping for pointy scissors on table behind. You get used to having no effects after having too many. So our future princess, known innately to look wan, hesitant, when temporarily languishing in little stuffy cell or chamber. OX, do you remember the day we, likewise wan, dizzy, for countless hours, not having no events, in dark end of railway flat room, stepping out and boarding number 100 West, Metro Crimazi, direction Ikea, a pair of matching chicks, people were happier then, having climbed the artist-designed, baroque-tiled, triple, double, quadruple, winding Metro Crimazi steps, having dropped our long-expired transfers into ticket receptacle, having murmured the traditional merci, merci, to giant, bearded, not minding because wanting to project progressive chauffeur, proceeding in two, three, four different rhythms to back horizontal bench, nodding a flush in idling diesel fuel heat, when you ex, you impercipient carper from the west, hating not going to Ikea fast in the car, whinnying too loud in English, notwithstanding everyone on bus number 100, en principe 100% French. How come queers in this place, this city, Montréal, Quebec, supposedly so sexy, so risqué, never seen smooching in public? I are refraining, which was probably advisable, from replying, that all things considered, was it not hypocritical to be implying one more avant than the next when wanting to go to Ikea in polluting private vehicle for sole reason of individual comfort, instead turning other cheek, direction, vieille madame on front reserved for handicapped seat, herself serendipitously cackling, garde-moi ça, and nain. Look at that, a dwarf. Re dwarf is crossed out, little person, entering folding bus doors, himself instead of putting traditional expired transfer in receptacle, standing on balls of tiny feet, reaching up and kissing, kissing, bearded giant at wheel, kissing, kissing, tiny tongue flickering in and out of big, hairy chauffeur's mouth, small behind in nice-fitting jeans, arched a very long time. X, I was getting hot wanting freedom, the freedom I'm looking for all, that's crossed out, wanting le palais des nains, the dwarf's palace, back where it was, Rachel East, the day you, my pseudo-Olympian, having decided to be glissading, glissading on back down dark inside stairs and through open door, as if skiing on a glacier, climbing up and glissading down on back again with rapidly bruising folded back knee, simultaneously blaspheming so loud in English and other indecipherable vernaculars, French girls leaning straight back out windows, laughing, laughing in bright autumn air at IR, sneaking sheepish out of settler nun court, following a pair of crumpled autumn leaves wearing deep in their veins the storms of generations, blowing over park once an orchard and the orchard was watered, blowing past triplex with Turkish dome pointing into cloud, which cloud in extenso stucco mission of Santa Cruz, decked in her fluorescence, the pair of crumpled leaves serendipitously now in wake of stunning female little person Long hair, bangs, painted lips, glancing back over tight pantsuited shoulders, so things might turn out for the best, having drawn this AM wheel of fortune inscribed with four points of the compass, bull, eagle, fit, sphinx, entwined snake, her tiny pump swinging east on diagonal toward modest brick and stone facade, 
provided by the shale pit workers from nearby quarries circa 1900, entering ground floor door of, of the Palais des Nains, where little Count and Countess Nicole, in memoriam of circus, perpetually on display, life-size Count photo welcoming guests, tucks, chapeau weave reflet, every perfect shiny object, tiny blue self of velvet sofa on shiny parquet floor, beds, piano, toilet, to scale with lowered ceilings, so fairy tale, normal. The Countess, Little Prince and Tummy, serving tea. Back in the stairwell again. In faded light of stairwell, now jade is a crypt. I the fly still flounce in a smidgen, round and round come thither. In dewy wet, does not the Lord help them who help themselves too too? Titillate in back of old Casnoisette's neck, who, like all in our intrigue, so long denied his fantasy that his chain of words unable to emerge, senescently mistaken via Rosine's keyhole, the light spot executed in a laconic shuffle on her stucco room wall for his beloved half-breed danseur, a claquette tap dancer, double joss douce, who, in whose almond gaze he, Casnoisette, once upon a time ejecting with the liberal smugness of youthful avant-Parisian, je t'aime I love you for what you are. Seven steps down, our étude policière assistant, the student, exhibiting some élan, having set aside his purple computer monitor for purpose of essaying postures and gestures almost liquid, does not all beauty require proportions of strangeness for Cesoir's Ligeia audition? One, eyes delightful, appalling. Two, I don't care what anyone says, that wig Stefan's wearing really belongs to me. Three, arms graceful, shrouded in ruby, revealing their whiteness. Here, the stagiaire precipitously remain, remembering reality, if denied, implying retribution dutiful cocking ear for any mimic rout or treble darkly ringing from under Rosine's door where her corpus delicti on bed eyes wide open possibly fixed on the shadow branches shifting along wall into attendant court of characters judge, defense attorney prosecutor were we not all fearing precisely that while well, light spot bobbing back on out nine, 4999 settler nun casement, crossing spats and leaping chair-like onto bent, ice-thickened branch. But what is a ghost? A flickering of memory? No. A ventriloquist, that's crossed, crossed out. Baby's high decibels from parked car outside Bleu Nuit tavern door. Just as I are exiting Palais des Nains, scoping in car parked opposite terror on a little sister's locked-in face, leaning toward baby over front vinyl car seat, being responsible for keeping baby quiet and okay, continuing down, down sidewalk past open bar door where females dancing, knees and berry crotches, splicing nerve ends of shattered men. I are not ready for similarly smoothing your ex, my tenders, terrible requitals, Example, by no longer mentioning your own um, doe-eyed infidelities. Therefore, if, on opening middle gallery door, finding you inert, due to glissading once too often on back down triplex inner stairs, I are surely kneeling on floor and placing fingers around your ivory throat for spoiling our day. So I guess that's... I'm going to answer questions if you want to. If, if, if you have anything. Thanks. Questions for Michael. Um, well, I think Rosine has a lot of class resentment. And... Um, one of the things I love about um, Dial M for Murder is that, uh, if you know the story, which I'm, I'm sure some of you, how many of you know this old Hitchcock film? Are there fans here of Hitchcock? Yeah, a lot of you do. 
You know, it's the it's Grace Kelly, gorgeous, rich, beautiful Grace Kelly, and she's married to a tennis player who comes from a kind of class beneath her, or a few classes beneath her, and he's you know pretty cool as long as he's winning tournaments. Um, but then he's not so interesting when his tennis career starts to fail, and she takes a lover. This is my reading of it. It's a little it's a little biased, but it's my reading of it. And she takes a lover, and um, he finds out. So he arranges with this really creepy second-hand car salesman to murder her. But, of course, she's, like, got all kinds of confidence because she's a bourgeois lady. So when this creepy little salesman comes and he's got her around the throat, she just reaches back with the scissors. That scene's in here. And stabs him and kills him. So the husband has no other recourse but to pretend that... Um, the salesman's been blackmailing her, and when he comes to pick up the money, she stabs him out of just sheer viciousness. And he he gets away with it in the beginning, and she goes to prison. Um, but because she's beautiful and rich, this is my reading again. <laughs> because she's beautiful and rich, um, after a while, she gets out of prison, and the husband ends up being found out and gets into prison instead because the working class options. <laughs> So that's my, that's my take on that. And so that's woven through the whole novel and this idea that it's really hard to beat the people in power who, in the, in, in the case of the Canadian context, are, are Anglo, white, and rich. So British. Not whiteness, but British. Yeah. Yes? Yes, ma'am. Um, the last part when you were... Uh, yeah. Is it I-R? It's I slash R. She always calls herself I. Oh, okay. I-R like that. But it also plays around with the syntax of the sentence. Okay. I don't think I read it very... I'm used to reading in front of a microphone where you can really play with your voice, and it actually comes across a lot better when I, when I do that because the, the quality of the voice is really important. But I... When you hear I-R, you can hear it both ways, and that happens with a lot of the syntactical and grammatical kind of uh, things I use in the... Like, there are many different levels of language. The fly, for example, who's her animus, and who's a guy. So I like that, too, that there's this kind of... Um, you know, she's, she's kind of a woman and a, and a man, and she's a very horny man in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sort of more or less horny woman. But the fly also has this kind of... Because she comes from a family that, that is trying to get a little bit ahead, and therefore they're passing uh, somewhat. And um, but when she get when the fly talks, he's he takes goes back to the way the family talks. So drops the G's and you know like talks in this kind of uh, language that's not really classy. You know, I I don't know about you guys, but I I mean. My parents talked like that, especially my mother, and I used to be so embarrassed about the way she talked, especially when I went to university, and and she would show up, and my friends would come in on and be like, please stop dropping your cheese, whatever, you know, all that stuff. So the fly does represent that kind of, and, and that kind of grammar stuff goes on all the way through. <laughs> Thank you. It looks like a novel on the page for the most part. Uh, um, the the margins are fairly wide, and if I had my way, they'd be even wider because I, um, again, I really don't think I probably read it as well as I could have. But I usually try to read it with every sentence being like a po poetic line, so that there's a, a space between. I'm really not a good reader when there's not a microphone. I don't know. I don't know why, but I'm not. Yes, Anna. Um, Joy. I'm, sure, I'm working my mind around this idea of, um, of experimental prose as a kind of endurance art. Now, how so? I mean, because sitting in the audience listening to. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and to already know what they mean before we read them. Mm -hmm. You know, 
which is basically like boil things <coughs> a thumbs up or a thumbs down is how right. I'm being trained to read, um, or whether to buy or not. <coughs> and it, it truly seems that um, you know experimental prose is asking that readers consider their time very differently than what we're being asked on a large scale. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> their time, the reader's time. It's you're so right. You're so right because people. I mean, I find myself doing it too. You know, my attention span is getting shorter and shorter because because I'm online like everybody is all the time, and I go here, and then suddenly, oh, that's interesting. I'll go over there. We're so. Yeah, 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 right. Well, I mean, um, I think that's a that's a really le legitimate question. On the other hand, the novel's 162 pages, so how how, how long? <laughs> but it's true that it's a book that requires you to read it o over and over, like poetry. You know, I mean, this is my like. Okay, my poet friends. You know, with pleasure, we read your work over and over. But people are not. People just aren't used to reading prose that way, and and are they're not used to reading? Pr I mean, people like Ron Silman, for example, who's who's who I mentioned in the beginning, and he's a a fantastic critic, and especially for for poetry, he's a really really good critic. But he stinks for prose, even though he wrote the New Sentence, which is a seminal piece. Because when he, I mean, I'm going by his his blog, which I haven't been following. I don't even know if it actually exists anymore. But he. Um, he likes the real narrative stuff when he, when he, when he, and I remember when he reviewed Rennie Gladman's um, uh, book, The Activist, for example, which is a masterpiece, and he said, it's 80% of a masterpiece. And I just thought that was so condescending, you know, because it's so much better than s most prose that's written. Uh, I, th so, um, I don't know if that answers, it doesn't answer anything. <laughs> I'm just ranting here, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's. We have to start thinking about reading in 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 different ways. That's all I can say. A prose in different ways. Yes. It's okay. The democracy, yeah. And, and then, and yeah. No, no, that's a brilliant question, actually. Um, well, first of all, for me, um, the possibilities of a democratic exchange in, in, in the reading-writing process involve um, the reader actually participating in the thought process that makes the work. And another of my complaints about prose, and especially about so much of the fiction that's reviewed, I mean, everywhere uh, in the in the mainstream press, and not only, is that it, it's like watching television. You know, it encourages a kind of passivity. You just, and and I read that stuff too. It's not it's not you know I'm not a snob in that respect, and I especially like detective <laughs> fiction, which uh, really you know it's is. I suppose invites on. Well, no, detective fiction's a bit different. But it, a lot of I, I'm trying to get away from the notion of passivity of a kind of passive approach to to reading. But the other thing, other part of your question, which I find really interesting, is about how the different notions of time work, which is also about trying to think of um, how we are in the world uh, in a less linear way. It's like, a, it's, as, as a Canadian, it's really funny to watch the kind of post-electoral raps that are, they're reading in the newspaper right now, where already you're talking about who's going to run in the 2016. I mean, that's just taking that, that sort of line. To, and then what gets lost in, in that kind of overriding narrative is, is the really important things that we 
need to think about all the time. And if I were to go on any farther about uh, time and narrative, I'm really interested in um, Walter Benjamin's notion of time, uh, historical time, and how uh, it becomes clear in um, how it, how it kind of pops up or emerges in revolutionary moments when, and, and you can really see that with the uh, Occupy Wall Street and the student movements and that have been happening in Quebec, for example, the Carré Rouge movement, which has been absolutely amazing, which is that suddenly people start remembering all kinds of things and, and also retooling uh, them in ways that are, are, are contemporary so that you've got a whole bunch of layers of time operating because people are acting and intervening and reading and talking and suddenly everything becomes really marvelously intense. And I think that's when, you know, narrative time uh, gets really challenged in a way that's really interesting. Yes. Yeah, it does. When it's a good reading, it really yeah, does. And I wonder, when you're writing a book like this, does part of you hope that people are reading it out now? Do you engage yeah, with the idea of absolutely. Kind of, um, world? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people tell me that my work is hard to read, I say, well, just try reading it out loud, you know? Just slow it. Because when you read things fast, you kind of read them... I guess you say in English bi diagonally or on the bias, and, and if you stop and go sentence by sentence, actually to get used to doing that, reading out loud is the best way. Yeah, that's really a good question too. Anything else? Okay, thanks. Thanks for coming, everyone. Yeah, nice to be back here again.